Welcome to Creating a Buzz About Health podcast with Paula Carnell. Hello, welcome to Creating a Buzz About Health podcast. My name is Paula Carnell and we're launching my podcast on International Day of Happiness. So it made perfect sense to have an episode all about happiness and in particular, the kingdom of happiness, Bhutan in the Himalayas. I was really lucky enough to visit this incredible place between India and China back in 2018. I was celebrating my 50th birthday and having spent seven years during my 40s bed and wheelchair bound with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I was now fully recovered and I wanted to celebrate by being on top of the world. So Bhutan is on top of the world. It's one of the highest regions, the highest um, kingdoms in the world. So much of the country is between three and 5,000 metres above sea level. And they have some of the highest peaks being along the Himalayas. And actually, as you fly into Bhutan, you fly past the world's highest peak, Everest. There are also high peaks of about seven and a half thousand metres across Bhutan, but Bhutan is a very special, sacred place. And so the summits are not to be climbed. So it has some of the most untouched and pristine environments in the world. And not only is it carbon neutral, it's carbon positive. So this country with its 75% landmass covered in forests is actually offsetting a lot of the, the carbon that the rest of the world are producing. So what is the connection between Bhutan and happiness? Well, you may or may not know, but most countries judge their production by what's called GDP. Um, and that is a balance of how much a country produces and then how much it buys in. And so you need to get that balance so that you're you're hopefully selling more than you're buying in. And that sort of offsets the economics of a country. Now, Bhutan is different because they actually measure their success and their balance by gross national happiness, GNH. And this is an incredible system and a protocol that the country has developed the government in alignment and with the support of the king and every decision that the government makes is balanced by how that will impact the happiness now it's very easy to think that bhutan must be the happiest country in the world however they're not, or not that we know of, but they do measure their happiness. So we know more about the happiness in Bhutan than we do of any other country. What was specifically significant to me is the least happy people in Bhutan were women of my age, women in their 50s and 60s. This was mainly put down to the fact that the country is a very rural country and it's only connected with a few main roads. So much of the inhabitants live in very small villages and it's um, sustainable agriculture. So people are just producing enough food for themselves and their families and they're trading with their neighbours. They've been living this way for thousands of years. And then at the end of the 1990s, the king decided to upgrade the country. And so satellite television and telephones were brought in, mobile phones. 
So now much of the population have a mobile phone. They also have satellite television. So from overnight, from being a very isolated country where people were living very traditionally in ways that hadn't changed for hundreds and hundreds of years, suddenly they had access to what was happening in the rest of the world. And what was happening in the rest of the world? We have all these very unrealistic TV shows, documentaries, dramas, and particularly about middle-aged women. They were leaving their families, they were having busy careers, they were dressing up. All the adverts with women having their hair done, having their nails done, looking incredible. Now, we know that much of that is unrealistic and the desperate housewife um, scenario is not realistic. It's not how most middle-aged women live. But you imagine that you are a farming woman who's been farming since you were a child, living on a rural mountainside where life is hard. You're climbing up mountain tops with logs on your back to provide firewood for your family who are meditating. You know, there's a completely different lifestyle. So for them to suddenly see that middle aged women in the rest of the world had this perceived freedom. They were all looking young and beautiful and they were having their jobs. They were um, buying all kinds of incredible things to make their homes beautiful. And so it was no real surprise that it's the middle aged women who had sacrificed their lives for the land, for their husbands, for their parents, their elderly parents caring for them, for their children rearing them, then the the tragedy of feeling that they'd had no choice, they'd had no other life. So the kingdom is trying to address this, but it's difficult because there's a lot of success behind these women who have held their families together. And by them holding the families together, it has created happiness. It's created happiness for all those around them. And it's created an incredible connection with nature. So me visiting as a very privileged middle-aged woman who had the freedom to travel, who was traveling alone without her husband, without her children, without my parents. They're still old enough, but well enough to look after themselves. I really was conscious of this, this position of privilege that I had. So visiting Bhutan, I was there to learn. I wasn't there to judge. I wasn't there to influence. I was there to learn. And because I was on my own and because I appreciated this privilege, I really wanted to learn about the bees. Now, before I'd gone, I'd read a paper by um, Dr. Nicola Bradbeer from Bees for Development, and she had visited in the late 1980s by request of the government and the, the king and had done a review of the bees. Now, Bhutan, with its situation, with high altitude, but also a real mixture of climates with the, the deep valleys that are actually quite lush and almost tropical, and then the high mountain plains, it has different bee species. Nobody, to my knowledge, has done a, a proper survey of all the different native bee species, but the honeybees have been evaluated and, and measured. So when Nicola Bradbeer went, there was the Apis dorsata, which is the giant Asian honeybee, which really is quite giant. 
And then there was, um, she found another species very closely related, another giant bee, Laboriosa. So you have Apis laboriosa and Apis dorsata, which are the giant Asian honeybees. And one of them lives at a higher altitude. So that's the Laboriosa. And the dorsata is found all across Asia. And they are the bees that you see clinging to trees or um, you have these big wax comb rings or semicircles hanging off branches of trees or attached to the sides of mountains. And that's the giant Asian honeybee. Then you have a smaller honeybee called Apis serrana, and that's the native honeybee, the Asian honeybee. A little bit smaller than our bees, but they're traditionally kept in log hives or small boxes. And people would sustainably work with these bees and take some honey. But it would always be a small quantity and nowhere near the sort of industrial level that we would keep bees. And then you have the trigona or melipona bees. These are the stingless bees. They're like a cross between a bumblebee and a honeybee. So they make honey, but they store it in little wax cups like the bumblebees do. And so this honey is, again, extracted in very small quantities and it's just squeezed out with pipettes. And this honey has been used for thousands of years all across the world where they have these various species of stingless bees. They use this honey for the treatment of eyes. So it's absolutely fascinating that this tiny little pot of honey that would be quite a premium price, very liquid, very high water contents, around 22% water, whereas most honeys have to be 16 to 18% or well under the 20% moisture content. So the, the stingless bee honey is prized as a medicine. It's used to treat eyes as eye drops. So you have these three to four species of bees and then sort of subspecies of, amongst those. So when Nicola Bradbeer wrote her, her review her, um, of her visit, she said that it would not be a good idea to bring the Western honeybee Apis mellifera into the country. Now, the Western honeybee, Apis mellifera, is what we have here in the UK. It's what you have in America. And actually, there's Apis mellifera all around the world. And that's mainly due to people from the West traveling around the world and settling and taking bees with them. The idea was that we'd have our own honeybees, so we could make our own honey. And they later on, it was understood about the pollination. Now, in Bhutan, nobody had done this. So we thought. Now, by the time I visited in 2018, it turned out that somebody had brought some honeybees in very shortly after Nicola Bradbeer's visit. So in the early 1990s, I believe it was 1995, a Swiss businessman had emigrated to Bhutan, having fallen in love and bought a farm and loved the area of Bumthang, which is sort of central Bhutan. It reminded him very much of his Swiss homeland. But what he noticed was there weren't honeybees kept in hives. So he shipped over five colonies of honeybees. It wasn't long before they all expanded. And now there's a corridor of honeybees across central Bhutan, going from Paro right past Bumthang. And there's now around 5,000, oh, sorry, 1,000 colonies of these honeybees from the original five that were brought in. So the colonies have expanded. The good news is they hadn't interbred with Apis serrana, so they have kept very separate. But it has pushed the Apis serrana out of the regions that were traditionally farming bees, farming honey. 
I was lucky enough to visit some of the traditional Apis Sarana colonies down in the south of Bhutan. So this is on the borders with India and it's subtropical. And then you go high up into the mountains and it's this lush rainforest jungle. And then there's these plateaus that have been carved out of the mountain sides where smallholders are having around three or four acres where they can grow their own crops. The king had been given four acre plots to all native Bhutanese to enable them to grow their own food. And the region, region of Surang um, down in the south was one of these areas that was very scarcely populated. And so um, a lot of people put their four acres of land in this area. So as we drove down, it was about um, a four hour drive from the main road that goes across Bhutan. We went down towards Surang and then off the road on a track. And then we were met by a government official, an agricultural minister who was going to take us to see a honey house. How cool is that, that there is such a thing as honey houses? Now, before I'd left, I'd done a little bit of research and I had heard about honey houses. The problem with Bhutan is that it's not very easy to see maps or to actually book accommodation there. When you travel to Bhutan, you have to use a Bhutanese travel agent and they have these schedules that they provide for 99% of their visitors. A lot of people visit Bhutan for like three to five days on their route from Nepal and then going to somewhere else in India or China. And so in these three or four days, there's an action packed tour where you'll go to your land and your plane in Paro. And then it's a sort of hour and a half drive to Timpu, which is the capital city where there's a giant golden Buddha on the hillsides. And then there's all these temples to see, including the amazing tiger's nest just outside of Paro. And so most people have these tours and that's what they do. If you go there a bit longer, some people go there to do treks. There are incredible treks where you go right into the wilderness for three, five, ten days, even where you're just trekking completely away from civilization. And then there's people that will fly across Bhutan, either from the um, west right over to the far east or, as I did, fly to the central Bhutan. And there you've got other regions that you can explore. But there's this one main road that goes across the centre of Bhutan from Paro, where the um, where the main international air airport is, right over to the other side, which borders India. So I went about halfway, which would have been an eight hour plus drive on the most wiggly roads on mountain sides. So I took the flight because I really wanted to see as much of the country as I could. The flight was also a little bit scary. Um, you're flying in between very high mountain peaks, which is great when it's a clear sky. But when it's cloudy, you know that the pilot is purely working on radar. And that's quite scary. There are apparently only six pilots in the world who are qualified to fly in and out of Bhutan. And it's renowned for having flights cancelled because of the weather where it is impossible. You also have flight restrictions with weight. So although it's a 44 seater plane, they can only put 25 people on the plane at any one time. And you're restricted with your weight of baggage. So it takes a bit of planning when you're going there. But to get to the south of Bhutan, there isn't an airport. So you need to fly to one of the airports 
and then drive around three or four hours um, to get down to the south. And there was two or three roads that went down. So we chose the road that went down to Surang, which actually went past a massive hydroelectric plant that was being constructed. I have never, ever seen anything on such a giant scale. You're driving along a, a mountain road and you look down to the valley, deep valley with a rushing river going through at the bottom. And you can see where um, the, the rock has been carved out and you can see where they're building and constructing this dam, hydroelectric dam, which is one of the main income resources for Bhutan is hydroelectricity, which they export around the world. However, you're looking down there and you're you're imagining one scale and then you spot a truck and you know how big the trucks are. But you see a truck and it looks minuscule. It looks like an ant. And then you see the real scale of the work that's going on. It was both incredible, but also quite hor horrifying because you could see the massive destruction. There were literally villages of workers that had been created so that there was the manpower to work on this construction. And also you see how the rocks were being carved out, trees were being felled. It really was quite um, quite a scar on the landscape. And you also see how valleys would have to be flooded. So anyway, so we drove past all of that and then we winded to wound around the, the hills to the end of a road and then we met this government official and then we trekked through some sort of ridges, some little um, terraces in between farms. And there was cardamom being grown. There were citrus plants. There were mangoes. There were avocados. It was just absolutely beautiful. The birds were singing. There were bees buzzing. And finally, we came to a honey house. And it's amazing to think that these houses have been built in such a rural location. So there might be the odd four by four truck that, that gets through and connects villages to villages. And we were actually told that if we went deeper into the forest for another two hours, but we would have had to use one of their trucks, then we could have found more villages with these honey houses. So for hundreds of years, people have been building houses which have walls with beehives built into the walls. It was just amazing to walk past these houses where they had log hives hanging on the outside of the houses. They had some long sort of square boxes, so like a top bar hive. And then there were the holes in the walls where you could see the bees coming and going. Something I found very interesting was when we stopped at one of the houses and we were greeted by the owner and his young children, they weren't wearing any bee suits. And right by their front door to their house, there was a kind of a terrace and on the terrace wall, you could see a hole in the wall with bees coming and going. And these were Apis serrana bees. So these were the native Asian honeybees. And they were coming and going and flying past the children and flying past us. And nobody had suits on and nobody was worried. The children were there barefoot. And the owner, he showed me how they would harvest the honey. They remove a sort of stone plate of disc that's at the front of the hive. And then they just put their hands in and cut out whatever comb they want. Then they just press the comb. So it has a bit of brood in. It has that sort of gristly taste that you get with honey that's been pressed with the wax and the brood. So this was an incredible, incredible experience. And I was so lucky to have seen that. The environment was so peaceful. 
And this is where you could see where true happiness is, where people were living completely outside of what we know of as normal Western living. These were small communities of people who were bartering, trading, growing the food they want, and the children were free to be playing amongst the terraces. I'm not saying it would be easy. You know, it it would be hard. And when you're living in that situation, you don't have the choices to go anywhere else. You are in a survival state. However, for many people, it really did appear like paradise. In fact, my driver, Sonam, who lives in the capital city of um, Timpu in Bhutan, after our trip on the last night before I left, I was asking them what were their favourite parts of the trip with this crazy bee lady who was doing a very unusual tour of Bhutan. And Sonam actually said that even though it was nearly 10 hours of driving on that day, that was his favourite day. He's got young children and he had no idea that people in his own kingdom were living such peaceful, happy lives. He was living in the city. He was working as a driver. So he was spending a lot of time away from his family as he was taking people like me around the country to see things. So it gave him another insight into other options of living in his beautiful kingdom. So when I arrived in Paro, um, I had the first night in Paro and I was lucky enough to be staring out of my bedroom window and looking right at the tiger's nest, um, this amazing temple that's just hanging off the side of a rock face. I actually ended my tour by doing a two day trek where we walked above Tiger's Nest and then came down to Tiger's Nest. So it's almost compulsory that everybody who visits Bhutan actually has a, a trip to Tiger's Nest. It's about a two and a half hour walk up the mountain and then a two and a half hour walk back down again. But by doing the trek, Wang Chuck, my guide and I, we had left the day before and we walked to very high altitude. It was about 4,800 meters right above um, the tiger's nest. And there's a little temple there. This was the Bumdrak um, trek. So if you're looking at treks in Bhutan, do have a look at this one. It was a luxury trek. So we had beautiful tents that were already set up with big beds in, covered in um, skins, you know, sort of reindeer skins yak skins to keep us warm and it was cold it really dropped to a very very low temperature overnight but it was such an incredible spot and walking up this high altitude the day before which is very strenuous and then arriving at this mountaintop and looking out across Bhutan it was incredible watching the sunset listening to the monk chanting in the little temple that was even higher than us hanging up. I later learned that there was a ridge behind us, which is actually one of the sky funeral sites um, or a sky burial. Now in Bhutan, it's not very common anymore, but there was a practice of um, sky burials where people would die and um, priests would actually chop up or the monks would chop up the bodies and then they'd be taken to this high point and literally fed to the eagles. It's now reserved just for the highest level of lamas um, and spiritual people. So it's, um, it is something that is still practiced. We didn't walk up to that site and I, I wasn't aware of, of that being there until afterwards. And of course, Tiger's Nest is a site to behold. 
something that is interesting, you'll see a photograph of people sort of stood like me with tiger's nest behind them and you think, oh, it's not very far. But you actually have to go down into a valley and then climb up. There's hundreds and hundreds of steps. So just when you think you're quite close, you've then got a big dip and a, and a climb up again to actually get to the temple. You can't take any photographs when you're there. You have to leave all your telephones and any cameras at the entrance. And so it has a very peaceful special ambience because people are having to be present it is a highly spiritual spot and really um yeah it's it's one of those things that changes your life so what did i learn about bees um i learned that this um swiss businessman had brought in honeybees so when i flew across from paro to bumfang there's actually a beekeeping community and my hotel was literally a few doors down or a few farms down from a local beekeeper called um, Navin and his wife Pretty. And they were great. They welcomed me into their home and I tasted some of their honeys and they showed me their beekeeping operation. Now, they're from southern Bhutan, so they're not Buddhist and they do actually eat honey. But one of the first things I learned is that most Buddhists in Bhutan do not eat honey. They consider it a sin. The Buddha had apparently had a drop of honey on his tongue that was fed to him by a monkey. And that was said to be punished um, for 100 days and 100 nights. So the Bhutanese are... Um, are very strong believers that therefore taking honey is a sin. They're also vegetarians. They kill no animals. There's no fishing in the rivers. They don't shoot birds. They don't shoot deer. Um, they literally have no meat, um, but they do drink milk and they make cheese from the yak's milk. It was really interesting to see this country that was living a, a completely vegetarian life and in alignment with nature. There were trees everywhere. There was wildlife everywhere. The amount of birds was incredible. And although I don't fish, I did look at the rivers and think, my goodness me, these would be amazing fishing rivers. And thankfully, nobody fishes them. So we know they're going to be full of fish, although I don't know the impact of the hydroelectric dams on the fish in Bhutan. The people are so loving and so calm. And this goes in line with keeping bees. To keep bees, you need to be calm. Uh, the bees, they resonate at a frequency of 256 hertz, which is the same frequency as the emotion of being present. So I find that fascinating that the people of Bhutan were so calm, so present. Everything was done at a very slow pace. Everything was done with reverence and respect and their respect for other people. When we were driving, the roads were very narrow. There was potholes. You'd suddenly be held up because um, the roads were being tarmacked or filled or repaired. And so you couldn't go anywhere. You just had to sit. But there was no anger. And then there might be lorries coming the other way, these sort of jingly jangly Indian lorries, which were you know, the, the main way of, of shipping things in and out of Bhutan. And the road didn't look wide enough to take a lorry and any other vehicle. But somehow we'd all breathe in and we'd get through and there'd be giggles and laughs. But there was no anger. There was no road rage. When there were monkeys in the road or even sat by the side of the road, everyone would just stop and laugh and watch them. And there was no tooting of horns saying, get out of the way. We need to get somewhere. 
So this whole pace of life was very, very different. It was not about looking at, at watches or looking at clocks or having to be anywhere. It really was just going with the flow. And this tuned in with visiting the, the bees. The bees, as we know, you need to be calm when you're with the bees. So Naveen and Pretty, they um, explained to me what was happening with bees and how they had bees. Now, they eat honey and they create honey. But the main market for honey in Bhutan is either for the southern Bhutanese, the Indians, or for the tourists. But you have a problem where the weight restrictions when people fly in and out of Bhutan are very, very strict. You really can't take huge weights in or out. And so it's not possible for the honey producers to really ship large quantities of their honey out. They do have agreements with Singapore. And I think with um, maybe in India, there were some countries that would buy their honey. But over the last few years where we've had the all the pandemic restrictions, I was very concerned for the Bhutanese because I realized they'd have no tourists and the domestic market would not be eating the honey. Now, one of the disadvantages with them having the Western honeybee and with having satellite television and phones was this desire to be catching up with the West and to be doing what we do, but without a real understanding of the mistakes we've made in the West. And this was also reflected in the beekeeping. So beekeepers had been going to India and learning the, the modern ways of beekeeping. So they were moving away from keeping bees in hollowed out logs or very traditional hives and now looking at having manufactured hives with frames and actually really industrially producing honey. But without this thought of where the honey was going to go once they'd harvest it. Of course, with the training in India and with much Western beekeeping, it's all about using chemicals inside the hive and feeding the bees sugar. So although the Bhutanese weren't using chemicals, they were feeding their bees sugar. But because the country doesn't grow sugar, they were importing sugar. And this was something that I was really saddened for, because not only did they have lots of honey, so there was no need to be feeding their bees sugar, but also everything grown in Bhutan is grown without chemicals. And so the bees have this incredible platter of forage. There were acres and acres of buckwheat. There was wild clover, wild roses. The wild flower meadows on the plains were just beautiful. And then all the trees, which of course produce lots of pollen, lots of nectar and the honeydew honey. So there was this great abundance of really nutritious forage for the bees. And yet there was this belief that they needed to feed their bees sugar through the winter months. This was something I found very sad. And, um, you know, I was there to observe and learn, not to judge. But I did talk to um, the government officials um, with agriculture. And interestingly, um, I met a, a friend called Pema, whose husband was a nutritional vet for the government. And interestingly, he wasn't working with the beekeeping association. And yet they were in the same building in the same town. So I'm hoping that I could have connected them a bit and maybe he could be sharing some of his wisdom about nutrition for insects and bees in particular and how that can be transferred to the beekeeping. So as well as temples and bees, it was just such an inspirational trip. 
I went there wanting to have a bit of an understanding about the Buddhist connection with bees. So that the book I still haven't finished, Spiritual Beekeeping, I could have a chapter about Buddhism. Instead, I came back and there was so much that I was intrigued by that I ended up writing a whole book about my trip to Bhutan. So it's called A Quest for Bees in Bhutan. And I cover the whole trip, the bees and the people I met and what I learned. And whilst I was there, I actually met a lovely lady um, called Emma Slade, who is a British Buddhist monk. She had a huge spiritual awakening when she visited Bhutan whilst she was an investment banker. She is now a Buddhist monk, um, Emma Pema, and she's an incredible, incredible woman. And she has this charity called Opening Your Heart to Bhutan. After meeting her and eating with her in Bhutan, I then decided that when I have my book, I should give a donation to this charity. What was really special to me about the charity is it supports the disabled children of Bhutan. Although it is a happy country, a very caring and a very loving country, a lot of their beliefs are, are from superstition and deep, deeply held understandings of consequences or karma. So when somebody is born with a disability, it is not seen as a blessing to that family. It also creates a lot of hardship. So children are often not treated as well as we would like when they are disabled. And because of the environment, because of the landscape and because of the poverty, you cannot be driving around in, a, um, in an electric wheelchair. You know, they had very, very few wheelchairs. So Emma's charity is opening schools, helping people have suitable facilities in rural, really rural communities to support the disabled children. It really touched me because I knew that if I hadn't recovered from Ellis Danlos, there is no way I could have visited Bhutan. I could not have had the freedom to travel around the country as I did. I would not have been able to visit the temples. I would not have been able to trek. And to think that there were children born in this beautiful kingdom who also had no freedom to go to school, had no ability to visit the temples or to go and, and even contribute into society. They were not taught the crafts and the skills that other children were. So Emma's charity, Opening Your Heart to Bhutan, has made incredible gains in the country with educating people to embrace disability and support it and to see the value in these children who may not be great yak herders but they can contribute with weaving and um, other traditional crafts so every book that I sell a pound goes to opening your heart to Bhutan and that's something that I'm I'm really proud of and I'm really proud to be associated with such an incredible charity now what really touched me that was a bit of a um it was a bit of a shock and I didn't totally absorb it until after I came back and I started writing my book. When I'd asked Sonam, the, my driver, who was a former, former monk, about bees and honey and why did the Bhutanese not eat honey, he told me about them believing it was a sin. And I was so shocked and I just couldn't understand this. And as we visited temples and we saw old wax comb hanging up and when it collapsed to the ground, it was just swept up and thrown away. They they had no use for beeswax. They just did not touch it. So I was so astonished by this that I hadn't 
absorbed the next thing he told me. He told me that the highest level of reincarnation, they believe, is as a bee. Now, how incredible is that? And that suddenly helped me understand why they would not eat the honey. If they believe that the queen bees are the former llamas, the highly revered, highly spiritual, highly advanced, enlightened beings, when now the bees, you would not want to take anything from them. I still believe that we are connected with the bees. And I like the belief that the highest level of reincarnation is as a bee. But I also like to think that the bees are creating honey as medicine for us. So as long as we value it as medicine and we take care of the bees as the revered, spiritually enlightened beings that they are, then that is us fulfilling our role of protecting their environment so that they are free to produce medicine to help heal us. So Bhutan was such an incredible trip for me. I know that traveling is not either viable or available to many people. So by writing the book, I hope that I can take you on a journey to Bhutan where you can close your eyes and you can imagine what it would be like if you visited it yourself. If you should ever feel the need to go, I hope that you would be able to contribute to the country and help them see that they have got so many things right. They don't need to abandon their history to try and be more like us. I think we can learn so much from the way the Bhutanese live. And when I came back, the memories of Bhutan and the feeling of being in such a, a spiritually enlightened kingdom that was so present and was so loving, it affected me and still affects me to this day. I was conscious of just how angry we live our lives here. I was conscious of how stressed everybody is. And yet that country functions with people being peaceful, loving and calm. So on International Day of Happiness, I hope that you can contemplate how other parts of the world measure happiness, but also strive for it. Have a think about what is it that makes you happy? Where are you most happy? My most happy moment was on my 50th birthday, being invited into a temple in Paro and joining about 20 Bhutanese women who were all singing and chanting. There were two yogis also in the room who were also leading the prayers. We were in a small temple and celebrating a special women's festival. And it coincided with my birthday that year and my 50th birthday. After watching the women from the doorway for a while, they in the end invited me in and I sat with them and was fully absorbed by their singing, their trumpet blowing and their drumming. I closed my eyes and the resonation, the resonance of their sounds and their singing just vibrated through my whole body. And as my eyes were shut, I felt, gosh, it's my 50th birthday and here I am sat in Bhutan, the, the heavens of the world, the highest place. I really am on top of the world. I am fit. I am healthy. I am happy. I am free. And as I shut my eyes and listened to the drumming and felt it vibrate through my whole body, 
I then wondered about everywhere I'd been in this life. And then I even imagined other lives. Perhaps I'd been in Hawaii. Perhaps I'd been um, a Polynesian drummer. Maybe I had been with the Maori, with the Aborigines, with the Native Americans. And I felt the love and the connection of all these peoples, past, present and future. And so I absorbed the happiness of Bhutan in my soul that day. And it signified the beginning of the next 50 years of my life. I was middle aged. I was blessed. I am blessed. And now whenever I want to, I can close my eyes and I can feel the heart and the happiness of Bhutan deep in my soul. And then I can carry on doing the work that I feel is so important and is my purpose. So I hope I can help you be inspired to find happiness and be grateful for any happiness you have found in your lives. The music I have chosen for my podcast is very related to this. These are two musicians and somebody had shared me one of their songs during the lockdown of 2020. It resonates at 432 hertz. And this is very important because this is a resonance of love. It's so valuable. It's so precious and it lifts us up. I'd message them because I knew I wanted to do a podcast and I sent them a message through Instagram. I found their post and I also put a message on their YouTube just saying how much I love the music and that I'd sent them a message. About a year later, I got a reply. They hadn't seen my message. They weren't active on social media and they'd been busy. And thankfully, they agreed to do the little song at the beginning and the end of my podcast. So I hope you enjoy this. It's very, very special. And it really ties in with being in that temple in Bhutan and feeling the resonance of love and joy. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I look forward to sharing more of my adventures, my learnings and any wisdom the bees have shared with me over the coming months. So thank you for listening um, to Creating a Buzz About Health. I'm Paula Carnell. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it. Please subscribe and follow me so that you don't miss any other um, episodes. You can find me on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and my website is paulacarnell.com. So the editing and production of this episode is by B. Brooke, and the music is by Raya. Thank you very much. You have to become yourself. Join us Open next time on heart. Creating a Buzz Open About Health heart. podcast with Paula Carnell. Buzz you later.